Hi there, and welcome to a different way of seeing. Have you ever wondered how a disabled person lives their life? Join our host Lois Drachen as she chats to people about work, education, travel, sport, the arts, and leisure, and the tools and techniques they use to live their lives with the disability. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and welcome to another episode of A Different Way of Seeing, a podcast where we talk all things disability. I'm your host, Lois Strachan, and today we are chatting to a fellow podcast host, George Abram, who is joining us from India. George, welcome to A Different Way of Seeing. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Hi, Lois. Glad to be here. It is great to have you with us, and I I so enjoyed guesting on your podcast, Highway Conversations, a little while back, and it's really great to be able to reciprocate and to host you for an interview here. Thank you, Lois. It's uh, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you at the, in the last podcast, Highway Conversations, and it's also going to be a pleasure chatting with you today. Well, maybe we can start off by just asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, um, that's always a tough question to ask, uh, or rather that's a tough question to answer concisely, but let me try. Uh, so I live in India and uh, I'm a communications person. I had a career in advertising and then I started working with uh, blind and visually impaired people. I'm interested in cricket. I'm interested in talking. I'm interested in uh, media. And uh, I'm interested in music. You started off with your career being in advertising. What was the the the, the journey that took you to shift from that into working within the blindness community. How did that come about? You know, I uh, spent close to nine years in the advertising space. I worked with two of India's uh, premier organizations at that time. Um, And, you know, I had my vision impairment from childhood. And uh, that was... uh, Definitely challenging, uh, though not an impossible journey from childhood to my professional uh, engagement. There was a bit of a challenge and difficulty getting my first job, being visually impaired. People were apprehensive. But uh, once I got the job, um, I was a client servicing professional and uh, worked with ASP and Ogilvy and Mather for uh, nine years, as I said. But what I realized, uh, Louis, was that being a visually impaired person, um, the journey upwards in my profession seemed to be tough, number one. Number two, I also, when I joined the um, profession, I was enamored by the creativity, the glamour, the action, and all that. You know, it was, it's, it was very exciting. There were a lot of things happening. 
But once I got into the business, you know, I guess everything became a little routine. And uh, so the, 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 the charm or the, uh, the, the attraction to the profession kind of started diminishing. I also realized being visually impaired, uh, the journey upwards in the profession would be difficult. And that's when I kind of decided that, um, and there's a third reason, which is that I'm a free spirit. I like to be my own boss. I like to do my own thing. And working within the confines of the advertising space, I just felt a little claustrophobic. And uh, I started looking around as to what I might do. And that was the time when my wife one morning told me that uh, she wanted to learn Braille uh, because we were expecting our first baby and she had a lot of time. She said she would like to transcribe books into Braille. I said it was a good idea. I also thought it was a good idea for me to learn Braille because I hadn't learned Braille till then because uh, I just felt that, uh, you know, using Braille as a prompt while I was making presentations, uh, you know, otherwise one has to kind of uh, keep everything in the mind. But having a kind of a prompt in the form of a Braille sheet, uh, I thought would be cool. So both of us uh, headed off to a blind school and uh, that journey proved to be a a, 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 a life-changing journey because when we reached the blind school and uh, saw what was going on, uh, that really upset me because I had a very uh, solid solid education in the mainstream. Uh, My parents were um, extremely encouraging, aspirational as far as I was concerned. Uh, And uh, I went to one of the leading colleges of India and I was working in corporate India, in a manner of speaking. So I just felt that um, uh, the the status of the blind school in terms of quality of education, in terms of the buildings, in terms of the faculty, in terms of the curriculum, all that seemed to be compromised. And when I asked around, I was also kind of given answers which angered me. Uh, they were talking about, um, you know, what will these kids do? They are blind after all, you know. Uh, some of them are lucky they will go to university. Otherwise, the others will just pass their time. Uh, this was uh, in 1989, you know, long ago. And uh, I also s- kind of uh, sensed a lack of commitment and a lack of accountability when it came to the, um, uh, or the lack of enthusiasm when it came to the faculty. And then I felt that I should be doing something with people like me. And that's when I decided to to, to talk to my wife and take her on board. Uh, she liked the idea. She said that, you know, we are young at the moment. We were 29 or so or 30 or so. We said if we were to work with the community, uh, there is no point planning to do that at 60. Uh, you know, we got to do it when we are young, when we have the energy, when we have the ideas, that's when we got to do it. God knows what state we would be in terms of health, in terms of uh, our minds uh, when we are 60. So that's how the journey began, uh, Lois. It's an interesting kind of overview because you've made a number of comments there, which as a blind person, who became blind later in life, I have, I can relate to a number of the things that you've mentioned looking into the situation here in South Africa as well. 
And I think there's a number of common experiences that that people face here in South Africa that that you would also be able to relate to back home in India. I want to look now at a different aspect of your career, and that is your involvement with blind cricket. Tell us about how you became involved in blind cricket and a little bit of the history there. Sure. So uh, when I decided to work in the space of life with blindness, of course, it was um, a very um, eager decision with a lot of enthusiasm. And when I started thinking, I really knew very little about the domain itself. So I started meeting people and people advised me to travel and see, uh, visit various organizations for the blind, whether it's schools, whether it is rehab centers, whether it is uh, skill development projects, vocational training programs. Uh, they also suggested names of people whom I should meet and chat with. So I took off uh, on a journey across the country, visiting different organizations. And uh, during this journey, exploring the space on the domain, I happened to visit Dehradun, which is in the state of Uttarakhand in North India. And that's where the National Institute for the Visually Handicapped, which is an apex body uh, for that works with blind people. And this is a government body. So I spent a few days there and... Uh, one morning, I got up to the sound of cricket commentary, and um, I have been a cricket buff um, right since childhood, and uh, I was rather disappointed in life because my dream of being fast being a fast bowler for India was thwarted or denied because of my uh, poor eyesight and or a lack of it. And so I went out to explore what, where this commentary was coming out from, and I saw a bunch of blind cricket, blind kids playing cricket. The commentary, the source of the commentary was the wicketkeeper who was belting out uh, the commentary, and uh, it had nothing to do with what was going on in the middle, but it was <laughs> evident that there was a lot of enjoyment and excitement in the field. Uh, the batting was quite uh, steady. Uh, the fielding was athletic, the bowling was accurate and quick, and I was uh, struck with curiosity, so I stuck around for a while, and then I walked up to the umpire and asked him. He was sighted, and he was the physical training instructor of the school. So I asked him what this game was all about, and he said, look, these guys are mad about cricket. They wake up in the morning, play cricket, go for breakfast, come back and play cricket, Have um, uh, go to school, come back and play cricket, have lunch, come back and play cricket. <laughs> Till we reach a point when the light starts fading and I can't umpire, I can't refer the game. So um, I tell the kids, look, bad light has started, the light has gone bad and you know we need to stop. So that's the kind of uh, involvement uh, these kids had with the game. And while I was watching the game, uh, my own personal passion for the game suddenly showed up and uh, there were about four thoughts that came to my mind. One, it was very evident that these kids were enjoying the game and they could play the game. There was skill. Secondly, I realized that uh, you know sports, cricket or any other sport is uh, you know very educative. You learn, you you pick up skills, uh, you pick up um, you know uh, various skills which are both social personal, uh, intellectual, 
because game is it's a team game uh, there is strategy involved there is discipline involved there is physical fitness involved so all kinds of dimensions of the person is kind of picked up on the playing field thirdly i realized that um, in a country like india where cricket is a religion um you know um, the media would pick it up it would be a wonderful way of uh, projecting talent and potential and possibilities to the society at large through the sport um and 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 finally i realized that this game could be taken to the global stage you know you could have world cups and you could have bilateral tours and so on so i immediately decided that i have found the project i want to do and that's how um, i got involved with cricket for the blind i came back home told my wife that we will promote cricket for the blind and she said wow let's go so that's how we began and um, uh, the the origins of cricket for the blind as a sport in india i think has a lot to do with cricket commentaries you will re- recall in the early days in the 50s and 60s and maybe even earlier uh cricket matches were covered on radio and it was like storytelling and it it drew people of all kinds and um, you know people wanted to know what the score was and they wanted to know what the pitch was like and who was bowling who was batting what's the partnership like and so on and so forth it's very engaging and um, like the average indian even the blind indian got interested in the game and it was noticed in some of these blind schools people were rolling empty tins and hitting them with sticks you know and uh, that's when it was realized that an audio form of cricket uh, could be played and that's when a ball was designed and developed which is made of plastic with ball bearings inside the size is similar to the normal cricket ball or the regular cricket ball the regular bat is used the wicket is made of metal so that the sound of bat hitting ball and wicket hitting ball would be different and um, the bowling is underarm and um, the bowler gives a clue audio clue before he is ready to bowl the batsman responds with an audio clue and then the bowler says play and he delivers the ball you know and he has to bounce the ball once before the middle of the pitch so that the ball doesn't hit the head or you know it, it could be it wouldn't be dangerous so that's how the game is played and uh, the game evolved and in 1990 i got involved and uh, uh, launched the first national cricket tournament for the blind where 19 teams from across india came across i also introduced the idea of sponsorship because i realized that i was promoting the game not as a charity but as a as a, as a platform to market in a manner of speaking the talent and ability of blind people so we decided to promote the sport as a sponsored event rather than a event which is sustained through donations uh, sponsorship is a response to the talent and ability while uh, donations is a direct response to um, the the disability so that was how we began uh, we had the national tournament it picked up and media covered it became popular by the time four years passed we had to divide the country into four zones because the number of teams increased uh, 1993 i kind of raised the uh, raised the level by by saying that in five years time we will organize a world cup and that uh, created so much of excitement uh, within the country uh, and then uh, 1995 uh, i decided to travel meet different countries 
came to went to Australia first, made a presentation to the Australian Blind Cricket Council, and then uh, moved to the UK. We organized uh, a conference for cricket for the blind in India in uh, September of 1996, where seven countries came around the table, including South Africa. There was a young man called Johnny Lowe who came from South Africa. And uh, uh, we had uh, England, South Africa, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, Australia, and India around the table. And uh, we discussed, standardized the rules, the equipment, set up the World Blind Cricket Council. And we decided that India will host the first World Cup in 1998. So that's how that's was the uh, that was a milestone uh, as far as blind cricket was concerned, and I happened to be elected as the first or the founding uh, chairman of uh, the World Blind Cricket Council, and of course history is uh, testimony to the fact or is witness to the fact that the first World Cup was held in 1998 in Delhi, and uh, and you know who won it? I don't. South Africa. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so South Africa beat um, Pakistan in the finals. So yes. that was that was the beginning of international blind cricket globally. Yeah. You know, one of the experiences that I will never forget um, when traveling to Kolkata in India was going to Eden Park, which is one of the big cricket stadiums. And watching a um, the, the Kolkata Knight Riders playing, and I didn't realize until then exactly how much of a passion there is in India for cricket. I, it was it was a much like a, a rock concert, in fact, uh, right. for me. So knowing that part of the the, the blind cricket culture is as strong. Is is lovely to hear a little bit about the the foundation there. So thank you for sharing that that story with us. Right, and 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 uh, uh, one small correction: uh, Eden Gardens is the stadium in ah. Calcutta. Eden Park is in New Zealand. My apologies. That just shows yeah. how bad my memory was. Eden Gardens. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Yeah. I should know better than to speak to a cricket fan without checking my facts. <laughs> yeah, I, we can't let this podcast go with uh, Calcutta, uh, the stadium in Calcutta being referred to as Eden Park. That is very <laughs> true. And I, I did notice when you mentioned the the teams that were yeah. at that first international um, meeting, how many of those countries are amongst the top cricket-playing countries in the world. That's right. That's right. Good, good to hear that. Let's shift away then from your work in blind cricket into the founding of Thor Foundation. How did that come about? And tell us about the aims of School Foundation. Yeah, so... Um... After the first World Cup in 1998, I had the opportunity of traveling across the country and doing workshops with young blind people, boys and girls, in the age group of 15 and 25. 
So this travel, I also did travel a great deal across the country during uh, the organizing of various national and zonal level cricket events. And uh, during these travels, I had the opportunity of meeting people from different walks of life. You know, I met people in education. I met people from the media and advertising. I met people from uh, um, the corporate world. I met blind people. I met their families. I also had the opportunity of meeting people from the law space, lawyers and uh, judges and so on. And I realized one thing, one message came through very strongly, which is that the real problem is people did not know how to handle blindness, whether it is blind people, their families, or the other people around in the community. Uh, people were prompted to respond to blindness only when blindness arrived. Nobody was prepared. Nobody is prepared. And a lot of time is used, is wasted in kind of uh, uh, trying to logically work. First, you try to fix it. You go to the doctor. You, then you travel around and do medical shopping for a while. And it's very interesting when somebody is blind immediately, there are people who will say, okay, there's so-and-so who's a faith healer. There's so-and-so who's an uh, outstanding a surgeon and, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of these little, little um, suggestions that come your way and people are anxious to kind of fix the uh, eye problem. So they actually travel and little do they think that, um, you know, when once the doctor says this is an irreversible condition, they need to look at how to handle life going forward. So the realization I had was that the real problem was not the blindness, it was the mindset. And that is the reason why I set up SCORE Foundation and Project IWAY. Uh, so what we really do is to address the issue of mindset using information. So we share knowledge uh, through various um, uh, channels. We connect people who need support with um, organizations across the country. Uh, we, um, we we, we um, also address uh, the issue of discrimination. So there is a lot of discrimination uh, based on ignorance, based on um, uh, preconceived notions. Uh, you know, blind people tend to get sidelined, marginalized. So there is a room, there's a lot of room for advocacy there. And fourthly, uh, you know, the world at large is not aware of uh, how to engage with blind people. And therefore, there is need for building awareness, sensitization, so that we work towards a world that is welcoming and inclusive and accessible. So that's uh, the broad uh, agenda of um, SCORE and Project IWAY. And uh, under the aegis of IWAY, we have a website, iway.org.in. We uh, produce a radio program in local Indian languages. Uh, it's been going on since uh, 2005. We also did a serial for television, which was telecast across the country. Uh, we run a helpline because people call us from across the country with their challenges, with their queries, with their problems. Uh, we also use WhatsApp and social media. And uh, as you rightly said in the beginning, we also have a podcast. Uh, and we use um, uh, every 
avenue of communication, every channel of communication to reach out to people in different spaces, different walks of life, uh, and 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 uh, engage with them. And uh, the uniqueness of SCORE Foundation and IBA is we don't do any projects in terms of education or training uh, firsthand or directly. We connect them with resources that are available across the country. Uh, in a manner of speaking, we aggregate services and resources and um, uh, put people in touch. So um, that's the uniqueness. And when uh, somebody who wants to fund us visits us, they say, where are all the blind people? And they only see me. And uh, my team, a lot of them are uh, able-bodied people. There are a few visually impaired people, but our projects are not uh, not not in our office. Our projects are through uh, connected, all, all delivered through various channels of communication. So it sounds as though School Foundation works at various different levels simultaneously, at higher levels with organizations, but also working directly with individual people to help them to serve their needs. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, in a manner of speaking, yes. We do speak to individuals. We do also engage with organizations. And we um, kind of encourage uh, uh, partnerships. We engage. Uh, we we do uh, encourage uh, people to. We we don't handhold as such because at the end of the day you got to swim yourself. So uh, we give directions. We point. In certain cases, we might have to handhold. But yes, um, it, uh, you know, if you have, if I were to put it in one line. We work with different kinds of entities, which includes individuals as well as organizations. Great. Let's talk a little bit about Iway Conversations, the podcast. How long has right. that been running and what prompted you to look at podcasting as a format to assist with um, the work you're doing? Uh <clears throat> So I personally have been, uh, you know, passionate about uh, the radio and, um, you know, uh, speaking, you know, the, the spoken word. And uh, during the pandemic, um, we were all grounded. We were uh, by force uh, at home. And, um, you know, I'm part of a Google group of uh, blind people. Uh, who are using, who are technology users. So one day I saw an email from somebody in Calcutta who said that uh, those interested in learning audio editing using a screen reader, please uh, register. So I promptly registered. I had all the time in the world at that point of time. So I registered and he was taking one-hour sessions once a week. And over 15 weeks, he taught us how to work with the software called Gold Wave, which is an audio editing software. And then um, we have been kind of uh, at, at SCORE Foundation talking about uh, doing a podcast. Uh, there was a lot of conversation, but uh, and I had asked many people, you know, why don't you come up with a plan? Why don't you come up with ideas? Uh, nothing seemed to be moving. 
So I just decided to take the bull by the horn and uh, I said, look, I'm going to start a con. I'm going to use this newly acquired knowledge and skill and I'm going to start doing my own podcast. And uh, that's where it began. And um, I just thought it was a good idea to, uh, you know, uh, bring stories uh, of people to the people of India and uh, people across the world, if possible. Uh, but I think... Um, the the starting point was my own personal interest and passion for the spoken word and um, uh, for the medium of uh, audio and um, the the novelty of the podcast platform so there was a lot of learning that was happening which kept the juices going and uh, once i started the podcast i was meeting very interesting people from across the globe and that in itself was exciting. And then people started writing and saying, oh, that was an interesting conversation. Or we enjoyed your chat with, uh, say, Lois Strachan, for example. So uh, the, uh, this kept the, you know, the, uh, the, the excitement going, the passion going. And uh, we've done over 80 episodes so far. And uh, now I'm looking at um, ways in which we can um, increase the viewership uh, or the listenership. So, uh, in fact, I'm looking around for young people who can help us do some social media promotion because uh, the way we've been promoting it, it's taking us to a certain level of uh, listenership. But uh, people, uh, you know, who have been in the space for a while say that the content is good. You should be able to reach out to much more. But how do I reach this much more is something that I'm not really sure. So um, uh, the advice given was, approach young people, they will help you. So I'm in the lookout for young people who might be able to promote uh, and market uh, the podcast that we have. It's interesting. I think um, listenership, viewership is definitely one of the, the questions that most podcast hosts are are working with and coming to terms with. So we do wish you luck with that. How often does the podcast come out and how do you source your guests? Well, uh, we uh, committed to ourselves to come out with three podcasts in a month. So we publish every Tuesday. So it makes three Tuesdays in a month. And the fourth Tuesday is a time of rest. Um, and and uh, how do we uh, source our guests? Uh, one, we ask our guests to recommend names. Two, uh, I've been around long enough and I know quite a few people across India and uh, I've also met people across the globe. So I tap into that uh, uh, database. And uh, I, I think reached the stage where uh, I need uh, help from people to recommend. And people have started recommending uh, names of people who could be interesting uh, guests. So the only um, only criteria for somebody to qualify is that they have a compelling story to tell. And I guess most people have a compelling story to tell. And um, they have something to do with the second thing is that they have something to do with the domain of blindness. They might be blind themselves or they would be people who are kind of uh, accompanying or 
uh, involved with some kind of uh, work uh, in the domain of life and blindness. Thank you for sharing that. And we wish you success with that podcast on an ongoing basis. If people are interested in finding out more about your work or in reaching out to you, where can they find you and how can they contact you? Well, there would be, uh, there are uh, several ways of doing that. One is uh, our organization's website, which is www.scorefoundation.org.in. Uh, that's where the organization um, email IDs and phone numbers and so on are given. Uh, I can also be reached via Twitter. It is at George Bhai, G-E-O-R-G-E-B-H-A-I. Uh, or uh, I could be reached on, I have a website which is georgeabraham.in. Uh, and of course, my email ID, which is george.abraham0 at gmail.com. I guess uh, I, I shouldn't be dropping more possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> it could confuse. <laughs> well, we will include all of those in the show notes as well, just to facilitate people reaching out if they'd like to, and possibly offering some suggestions of future podcast hosts. Guests. Oh, that'll be lovely. That'll be lovely. While we've been chatting here, I know we've focused really on very few of the 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 areas in your life that you have been involved in. And I am kind of, there's so much looking at your bio and looking at the work you've done and following some of your, your work. You know, I, I did realize there was no way that I would be able to touch on everything. But what would you say is your greatest achievement in your life so far? Uh, that is a difficult question to uh, answer because uh, at various uh, stages in life, I think there have been uh, uh, accomplishments which at that point would be a great achievement. Uh, I think when I won the 100 meters dash for the first time in class nine, I was extremely happy, delighted, thrilled. When I organized and the first World Cup was successfully organized, I was uh, thrilled. When I sang my first solo in church, I was delight, delighted. So, uh, and then, um, you know, when I suddenly discovered a whole range of opportunities of reading books, that was terrific because uh, I spent a big part of my life starving for books, craving for books, uh, the only only format or, or the only experience of reading I had was when my mom used to read to me when I was a kid or when my brother used to read, read to me and, and later on my wife and I would read together. But the, the, the desire to re devour books, uh, depending on others to read out to you, um, you know, uh, that was, uh, it was just a, a pale um, <clears throat> uh, way of uh, handling uh, reading. But when things like uh, Kindle, uh, e-books, e e um, uh, Audible and stuff started coming in, you know, I started using 
time when I'm on the treadmill, when I'm in the car, uh, when I'm on my walk, uh, when I'm um, doing my, uh, you know, uh, anything outside my uh, work routine, I would have my earphones and my phone with books. So uh, I, I, I'm kind of making up for lost time. Uh, and and whenever I talk to people, I one of the questions I ask them is, okay, any recommendations for reading? Uh, and invariably, they'll have one or two uh, titles. And I'll promptly look for them on Kindle or on Audible and, and start reading it. So uh, that's a moment of excitement for me. And, um, you know, when I... Uh, I also love speaking from the stage. So every time I go on stage and speak, uh, that's a big moment for me. So there's no single uh, big moment or the biggest moment. I think all these uh, experiences I've had through life uh, have been great moments and the biggest moment at on, at, at that point of time. You know, so uh, I, I guess that's what I would like to say. That's so much food for thought in that answer. So thank you for for sharing that. As a final question, what does the future hold for you? Well, uh, I think um, uh, I am uh, seriously contemplating. Uh, this is still an idea in my head, but uh, one of the things I probably would do uh, in the near future would be to explore the possibility of. Uh, you know, today, blind people in India, the the source of livelihood is either employed with the government or um, uh, the private sector. So I'm looking at uh, ways in which promoting entrepreneurship as a third alternative to employment. You know, India has a, has a challenge of numbers. Uh, according to the 2011 census, there were 5.4 million people who were blind. And that number would be much larger, I believe, today. And uh, we all believe that uh, these numbers are far below what the real number should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and the government jobs and private sector, government jobs, of course, are limited, um, though many. But given the, uh, when, you, uh, when you compare it with the, the demand, it's very, very limited. Private sector is a very small uh, offering because... Most companies, corporates still are hesitant to hire people with vision impairment. So it is time that, uh, you know, the blind person decided to start their own business. And uh, there are a few people who do business in India, but um, uh, opportunities to learn business, opportunities to, uh, to be skilled in business, opportunities to access resources for doing business. Uh, these are all very difficult uh, and uh, foreign to people who are blind. So uh, that's an area that I'd like to work on. And um, uh, probably the other thing I'd like to do going forward is uh, move to doing some writing and uh, uh, do more of personal podcasts. Right now I'm doing a podcast for the organization, uh, probably in the area of podcasts. Uh, So writing, podcasting, and then uh, in the area of work would be the space of entrepreneurship. 
I think these would be three areas that I would uh, see myself uh, gradually transitioning into. And it sounds like we would need to check in with you in at some stage in the future to find out how you are getting on with those three different aspects. Well, that would be lovely. And uh, and, and I do hope that, uh, you know, uh, these are all ideas and, you know, uh, uh, translating or converting these ideas into action uh, you know, calls for example the 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 entrepreneurship. I just know the E of entrepreneurship at the moment. So I'm actually talking to people, gathering information, and trying to put together a kind of a project uh, to which would be real to the people and the context of India. So that's the challenge, and that's what makes it interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a fascinating project to take forward. George, thank you so much for joining us on A Different Way of Seeing today. It's been fascinating to chat to you. And as I said, I know we've only touched on a very few areas in your life. But we really thank you for sharing some of your experiences and a little of your life journey with us today on the podcast. Lois, uh, thank you so much for uh, thinking of me, inviting me, and... uh investing this time. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Different Way of Seeing. We'd love to connect with you. So find Lois at loisstrachen.com or Facebook Lois Strachan Speaker. This podcast was edited by Craig Strachan using Hindenburg Pro. Hindenburg, it's all about the story. The credits are done at Naledi Media. Naledi Media, all your vocal needs under one roof. Read by Charlie Jassy. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us and see you next time when we bring you into the world of seeing differently.